welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, we have Jeff Keltner, Senior Vice President of Business Development at Upstart. Upstart is an online lender that utilizes artificial intelligence throughout various parts of the underwriting life cycle in order to issue policies as quickly and effectively and with <laughs> a better risk profile than conventional lending. And with that, here's my interview with Jeff. Jeff, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So Jeff Keltner of Upstart, tell us about Upstart. So Upstart is an AI lending marketplace where we power bank and credit union lending programs across a variety of products, including unsecured consumer loans, auto refi and purchase loans, and in the future, other kinds of loans, and really apply artificial intelligence to help our partners achieve a couple of things. Uh, you know, increasing approvals without increasing risks are really serving a greater portion of population, reducing the time and therefore cost to onboarding so that you can have um, you know, more loans at lower operational expense with higher automation through the process, which makes customers happier. And the other key thing we work with our partners on is actually helping them acquire net new customers. So not only serving their current customer base, but being able to effectively and efficiently find new customers for their institution. So talking about the origin of the company, how did it come to be? What was the problem that you guys were trying to solve? Yeah, the, the core insight we had, I mean, I, we used to get asked this all the time. A lot of our founding team left Google back in 2012. And the question was like, why, why does one do such a crazy thing? My mother-in-law certainly asked me that a lot. You hate money. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> why do you take a pay cut? And uh, what we really saw in the market was that many more Americans are credit worthy than are understood to be credit worthy through mm -hmm. traditional metrics like a credit score. And we did some research with TransUnion on this, and it really showed that more than 80% of the Americans American public had never defaulted on a credit obligation, and yet less than half has a credit score that would qualify them for prime type credit. And we just thought, hey, there has to be a better way to look at and understand the credit profile, the risk profile of different consumers more accurately than that. Uh, so that was really the thing that brought us into the space. And, and we started applying both a more extensive set of data points, some of them, most of them just credit file data points, and then more sophisticated analytical techniques like machine learning to help understand what's the real risk of giving Jeff Keltner, this kind of loan, and, and how can we get you know, a higher portion of them approvable without increasing risk, which there's a lot of room to do when you look at that 80-50 you know, discrepancy. So yeah, this is a well-known problem, quite honestly. And it's interesting that well, it's one of the right places for fintech. I remember specifically, mm -hmm. um, was it was the Lending Club or Lending Circle years ago. Someone had done analytical data, uh, research on their peer-to-peer -peer lending platform and their risk modeling. And they found that they were able to issue significantly more loans than they would out of utilizing FICO scores than otherwise, and that the default rates were were basically were the FICO scores were not commensurate with the actual default rates that they were experiencing. So that opened up yeah. the market substantially. So that is not a small problem to solve, right? I mean, like no. there's a lot of information here that needs to go into that. So so talk to me about the entire consumer life cycle. So we have to the vendor life cycle in a second. The consumer life cycle of this is how you know how they go about getting approved and why is your situation how does it work differently with you than elsewhere yeah so i mean uh consumers find the programs one of two ways we run kind of a, a marketplace for consumers at upstart.com where they can come and we will pair them with one of our bank or credit union partners depending on the risk profile the geographic footprint things like that or a lot of our partners also market these loans to their customers and the process is very similar to other lenders and, and the interesting thing to me is i think most online lending what i'll call online lending 1.0 was kind of the digitization of the process, but not fundamentally changing how we thought about risk. So we, you know, take the scorecard and apply it automatically in a digital way, but not change it. So we're asking a handful of questions. A couple of them may be different than other, other platforms ask things like your occupation, right? Your employer, things like that. Also your level of education. And then we're pulling a credit file. One of the interesting things to us is when we say, you know, looking beyond a credit score, many people think about not looking at the credit file, but the credit file has hundreds, if not over a thousand 
pieces of information about a consumer. And most lenders reduce that credit file down to four or five things, right? Uh, number of recent delinquencies, number of recent bankruptcies, number, you know, credit utilization, and then like a credit score. And so you've taken a thousand points of information and turned it into four, and you lose a lot of the value of the information there, right? And it turns out when you look at each of those individually with sophisticated algorithms, you can really understand the risk of a borrower. And so the way our, our technology works with our partners is each of our lenders specifies a, a credit policy. So they do have a minimum credit score and a maximum debt to income. Although increasingly they're eliminating the minimum credit score entirely and relying on upstarts modeling to help them identify the proper risk. And then they've got a return target. And so when we will run an analysis that says this loan to this consumer is so risky, and then that loan gets priced based on the consumer's interest rate is set based on the bank's return target. So we're kind of backing into what's the interest rate we need to charge given the risk level to achieve that bank or credit union's uh, target return objective. And then that price is presented to the consumer. And that all happens instantaneously with a soft credit pool. So it's real time. So you talked about this being a two-sided marketplace, right? We'll mm -hmm. come back to the entire modeling in a minute, but I want to understand the other side of it first. So you're partnering with these vendors. So essentially you're saying they're promoting. So how does this relationship work? You have your own portal, your own website for this. Mm -hmm. Are they white labeling your service at any point, or are they simply just referring through for loans that they provide the back end no, service on? They're white labeling. So, you know, once someone a consumer comes to upstart.com, we will match them with one of our lenders and they will understand who they're originating that loan with from that point forward. So we're really delivering not only a loan, but a customer to those partners. And then also those partners have a full white labeled front end. So if they're marketing to their current customers that come in, Upstart's kind of like total backend technology provider in that instance. So we're just powering the experience, powering the risk, again, within the credit policy and return targets of that lender. So there's kind of two ways consumers enter it, but in the upstart.com way, we're absolutely handing that consumer off to the lending partner that we work with. Now, of course, we're powering that experience, but the consumer understands, hey, Upstart found me a loan with Customers Bank or First National Bank of Omaha or First Federal Bank of Kansas City, and I'm going to originate with them. So... What's their incentive for coming to you in the first place? Is it just simply access to more of a market or is it just basically being able to grease the wheels on underwriting all together? Yeah, I'd say it's really, there's three things I hear when I talk to our, our lending partners. One is, hey, we want to get into these unsecured consumer loans or these auto refi loans. We, you know, a lot of them are seeing the deposits of these loans from online lending companies <laughs> into their, mm -hmm. their bank accounts and go, hey, I need to be offering this capability to my customers. And yet it's expensive. The loans are small. The duration is short compared to mortgages or commercial real estate. So I don't earn as much interest revenue. So I've got, I have to have a low cost base. I need high levels of automation and we can deliver that for them, right? So that's one. Two, they go, even if I did this myself and could, could make the costs work, I know I'm turning away a lot of good customers. And I, I want to have a smarter underwriting that helps me better serve my customer base by approving the people that really are going to pay me back, which I know I'm not doing enough of today. And then third is that like, hey, I, I need... I'd like new customers. And frankly, many of the, the lenders are saying, I've got high levels of deposits, uh, low levels of demand for my traditional lending products. I need a good asset to put my, my deposits to work. So it's kind of a combination of that. Uh, you know, Can I get a better process? Can I get better underwriting? Can I get new customers and, and loans on the books in a, in, a, in a fast fashion? And those things are, are very real and really what drive, I think, the, the adoption by banks and credit unions. Excellent. So curious, how much of a sell, how much of a hard sell is this for them? I mean, they see the market, right? But dealing with, with, with yeah, yeah. let's call it non-conventional risk modeling <laughs> online systems isn't exactly something that they're used to. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a process, right? I think the degree of controls they have over the underwriting model is really important, right? So the ability to set 
um, from a risk point of view, credit score minimums, debt, debt to income ratio maximums, recent delinquency, credit inquiry, credit utilization requirements get to them very comfortable. I think the fact that we've been working with dozens of bank partners over numbers of years with tens of billions of dollars of originations helps them also go, hey, there's history to this, right? Like we've got banks that are regulated by every major regulator and credit unions, right? So we they've been through exams with these loans on the portfolio. And, and I think that gives people comfort in this. And I think most of them are driven by the desire to serve customers better. I mean, this is, I always go back to this, but you know, I, it's kind of funny, you know, we think about like a subprime pool that every lender, you know, would stay away from. And it's what a 20% loss rate, 30% loss rate. And if you kind of invert your mindset, you go, Hey, we said no to 80% of good people. Like it's like my kid comes home with a 20% on a test and he wants it. He wants a fist bump and I'm going, uh, 20% is not a good grade, big guy, right? Like and my son's never come home yeah. with a 20%, but like we're turning away a vast majority of good people and, and everyone knows this. And so when they see the ability to get into the space, to do it effectively. I think it, it it drives them to make this happen and to do it effectively. So it definitely, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that goes into that process. I will say we also, before we started working with any of our lending partners, uh, we went to the CFPB and, and asked the question, like, how do you think about, you know, one of the big questions would be fairness and, and fair lending. And how do we think about testing and monitoring for that in the context of a model like this, in the context of non-traditional variables and non-traditional analytic approaches, and really work with them to develop a testing routine that we still use to this day across the platform. I think that positive engagement with regulators helped a lot as well in getting people comfortable that, I mean, there's those fintechs, and you know this, um, that try and fly under the radar of regulators. And so, you know, try not to attract anybody's attention. And we went the opposite route and said, hey, before we even get going, we want to go talk to the regulators and figure out how we do this the right way. Because there's a big win for consumers. There's a big win for financial institutions. And we need some clarity on a couple of points. And so, yeah, I think that helps a lot in terms of how we've engaged with regulators historically. I get the entire, you're saying no to 80% good people, but, uh, you know, it's, this is an industry that almost rewards people for saying no, right? It's, it's, it's for taking the, you know, you want to do business. Absolutely. <laughs> like, that, that imperative is there. But also avoiding the downside at all costs is a hugely a concern for most people. So especially in it this space. So it's but I just, say, one of the things that surprised me coming from tech into the, the consumer banking space is how consumer oriented they really were. I mean, I think a lot of us take our perspective of finance from Wall Street or investment bankers or, or more traditional banking activities. And you know, every consumer-oriented banker I've talked to is mostly focused on, hey, how do I better serve the consumers that I'm working with? And that, I think, actually does drive more than I expected what they want and, and their willingness to take a little bit of risk. You know, of course, there's like lots of committees, a risk committee and a credit committee and all sorts of people that have to get on board with how you do this. But I think generally the institutions want to head this way. They're just looking for the way to do it without losing money, not you know having issues in their safety and soundness exams, having issues in their various regulatory uh, interactions. So... All right, so let's get back to the tech here. So yeah. bottom line is these are people who have, were said no to before. You're compiling a bunch of information from beyond the normal. Let's go back to what that looks like. How many different sources of data? Where are you getting this kind of data? What does it look like? What kind of behavior yeah. patterns are you looking for? What are the, so let's just say, let's start there and I got a couple other follow-ups. Yeah, sure. So let me break down. We, we use machine learning in a couple of areas, but I think two that we should really focus on and, and they have different answers to your question. So the first is kind of like someone submits the online form and we're going to assess the risk. And we're going to assume at this point that everything they told me is true. That may not be a good assumption, but for the risk model, we kind of say, given these inputs, what's the risk? And then we have a separate set of models that say, how likely is it that Jason told us something that's not entirely true? He's not really Jason. He doesn't really make that much money. He doesn't really have that job, whatever it is. We use machine learning in that as well. On the first model, really the information comes from the credit bureau and it comes from the user providing that information to us, either explicitly answering questions on the form or implicitly in terms of how they interact with the form, how you found us, things like that, that are kind of all provided. They're all either coming from a credit bureau or coming from 
uh, the user themselves. And like I said, part of that is we just get over 800 points of data from the credit bureau. So we are looking at those in very granular ways. There's also a lot of feature engineering work. And this is where I think sometimes people think of machine learning as this like button that you press and like everybody's get the same data. You press the button, everybody gets the same model. And it is just not that way. There's a lot of work to make it work well. So part of that is like, we do a lot of feature engineering. So for instance, you know, obviously you don't use like where someone lives in the model because there's literally laws against doing that and a lot of that history. But one thing where somebody lives tells you that's really interesting is how expensive things are. And therefore, compared to their income, how much free cash flow might be left at the end of the month and what kind of payment they can afford to make. So we have a lot of work that goes into like looking at where they live and cost of living from third parties based on that information that we can then roll into cash flow models to make sure we're making ability to repay calculations, right? That, that makes sense. So there's a lot of that kind of modeling going on in that. The key thing here is credit bureaus and user provided for underwriting on the, what we call the fraud and verification models, where we're looking for, are you really the person you said you were? Do you really make how much money you said you want to make, et cetera? We have a number of third-party data sources, right? And some of these are pretty standard vendors, you know, fraud vendors or ID vendors. We also use connectivity to the bank account to look at transaction history. Uh, and that actually uh, helps you identify three things, at least, and probably more really. Uh, one is, is this really the right person? Like, so when you have a bank account with direct deposits over a long history of time. That's a really strong signal. This is this is a real account, right? When you get a bank account that's two weeks old and has no transactions, you go, this, this looks a little sketchy, right? That's a, a high fraud signal. You can look at income, right? Because you can see the depository history and see if that matches the stated income. So you get a lot of information there. And then you can also often find in the era of online lending, um, sometimes people are applying for loans in multiple places at once. And you may not have the information about the latest loan taken out on the bureau you got because uh, they took it out the day after they applied for you and it's three days later and and, and you can find the deposit of that loan in and you can kind of find that, hey, maybe there's a loan we didn't know about when we did the underwriting. So all those are things we're looking at and using a set of models. And the output of that that I think is equally impactful as the underwriting to our bank partners is that about 70% of the borrowers that come through our platform across our lending partners uh, have no manual review and no documentation to upload during that verification process. It's full, what we call fully automated or instant. That process takes end to end 20 to 30 minutes on average um, versus saying, hey, go find a W-2, go find a bank statement, upload it, pick a picture uh-huh. of your driver's license, wait for somebody to look at it, we'll call you back. That still happens on our platform, but we've gotten that level up to over 70% fully automated, which is pretty big, right? And they convert between two and three times as often at a rate offered state to an actual loan as someone who has to upload a document. So that's, we didn't appreciate the value of optimizing that part of the process when we started. And yet it's been equally impactful in many ways to the underwriting work that gets done. I don't know a single business that services people in the financial industry where onboarding isn't the single biggest pain in the butt to getting it done. I mean, the, you know, I don't care whether it's a loan application or financial planning or you name it, uh, document acquisition or data acquisition is the single most difficult part of it. And well, yeah, I, seen- I think there's two approaches to solving this too, right? There's like, okay. do the same thing, but use OCR, right? It's like, t- have the person yeah. take a picture of a driver's license and then have a machine do what you used to do. We kind of took a different yep. first principles approach. It was like, what do you need to know? I need to know if this is really Jeff. Well, one way to do that is to look at the driver's license. There are yep. other ways to do that, right? And so we try to look at the simplest, least frictionful ways to do that. And then of course they have fallbacks. If, if those ways indicate risk, then we might ask for it. You know, in my case, when I applied for a loan as one of our first test subjects with one of our bank partners, you know, it asked me for a video selfie of me holding my license and telling you why I wanted the money because I, I triggered a whole bunch of fraud signals, right? Yeah. So we have that, but we really want to see how many people, because the vast majority of applicants are good, can you push through a highly automated system? And this is, to my earlier point, when you look at personal loans, the revenue is such that if I had somebody looking at four documents per loan as a bank on a $10,000 loan that's going to be out for two years, like, 
I can't make money doing that, right? I'm losing money on that product. So that's why I think yeah. people are looking to newer solutions because they can't they can't do this without that level of automation. Yeah, well, I mean, I've seen it firsthand. Companies won't get like financial institutions who won't get into certain lending or have the opportunity, even, even when government backed or protected, they won't mm-hmm. do it because it's just like, no, the amount of time and effort it would take to get through anti-money laundering and all this other stuff, it's friction. Friction is a real thing in this space. It's massively prohibitive, right? You know, at the end of the day, it always comes down to cost distribution in almost any business. And that, you know, that determines your your potential market size for any product. So it makes a ton of sense. So what you're handling, it makes so much sense because frankly, again, it's these entire processes exist in order to catch the people who weren't doing the right thing in the first place. But the only way to do that was to basically treat everybody the same, resulting in the same high burden of care across the board, or as like the refer to it as lowest common denominator compliance, right? One guy on the floor screws it up for everybody. And now everybody's got to fill out three different forms. Happens all the time. <laughs> but you know, you've, you've basically found enough simple, and I've seen this in different, I've seen many different instances, many uh, simple methods for basically verifying things that are, that are key to low enough risk that you can pass through 70%. That is that, that productivity gain is, is just, it's, it's, it's just, just astounding, quite honestly. Yeah. And the, the thing I would tell people about this is like, if you're looking for the silver bullet to get that, like we, we got a lot of vendors, like I've got a fraud score, you should just use the score. And we're like, no, no, we need your underlying data combined with everyone else's. It's not one point of data that gives you the magic. It's like 10 or 15 or 20 or 200. And then looking at all of them and saying, hey, this one was a little risky, but these 20 weren't. That's okay, right? And you start, you have to have a lot of data to do that, but you can make these models so much more effective. And to your point, I think one of the things I see in the industry is people are caught up around digitizing. And mm-hmm. I went through a digital mortgage and they asked me for like 50 documents, uh, some of which yeah, were produced by an old manual process. Big deal. Like just yeah, they, they digitized the old thing. And not only did they digitize the old thing, but they like, it was, it was my bank that was asking me for my bank statements, but they wanted me to, yeah. have, well, they hadn't. So there's a, you know, there's a difference between getting digital and really optimizing these processes and the productivity enhancements when you can really optimize are, are just massive. Yeah, my uh, my favorite one is insurance companies saying that they basically have digital applications and their version of a digital application is a fillable PDF. And I'm sitting here just like... <laughs> or they, you know, you, it's, it's an online form and then it emails the underwriter and you go, I, it's digital. I mean, I can't I can't deny yeah. that I did it on a device, or, but like, or, not the same. Or the government ones where I've literally seen people like, oh yeah, oh, you filled it out over there. Okay, great. Let me print it up over here so I can manually key it to some other system. <laughs> I, I mean, I... Oh. I, I, it just, it causes me great pains to even think about this stuff, but it's interesting. And we said about the data makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think of some of the earliest instances of this kind of machine learning being used to, and I think largely out of Africa was where I saw it, where there they were able to, you know, scan the contents of your phone, right? Mm-hmm. Like bullet start to finish, right. As a, as a digital fingerprint, but they were able to then say like, Hey, you know what, uh, guess what? The number of times this person calls their mother on a weekly basis corresponds with their actual credit worthiness, believe it or not. <laughs> so all these like extreme little indicators that were maybe on their own, not important, but when combined with three other factors, like, oh yeah, someone who looks like that is not going to basically default. Yeah. So, we don't, so we don't that's do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, you can't like do that. Let's be honest. Let's, let's face no. it. You can't. So question for you, I'm sure I'm, here's a, here's one as a follow-up to this, any kind of, are there any kind of profiles or individual pieces or small kind of like combinations of data that you guys have found surprising? You're like, oh, that is explanatory information in it. That's surprising. No, because it's interesting. I mean, there are some, right? We use education and education is actually, particularly for younger consumers, you can imagine for a consumer without a strong credit history. I mean, one of the problems with the credit system is we look at you repay loans in the past as an indication of you will repay loans in the future, which of course, if you avoided taking out loans in the past because you were being responsible, 
you're hit. Yeah. And so looking at education and occupation are really helpful. But the reality that we found, and this is the unfortunate truth, I think, is that there aren't small numbers of combinations of data that are hugely powerful. It's it's the sum total of Large the data put yep. together. Fair enough. Right. And so you don't find those those things. I will say there are occupation is a great example. We find that the model for public sector workers often are people who are uh, more credit worthy than their credit score by a lot. So nurses, public school teachers, firefighters, police officers, as just an example of like, and it kind of makes sense, right? Like, why is that? Say, well, your biggest risk of default is unemployment. And these are industries with very low rates of unemployment, very, very stable employment, despite maybe not as high a pay. And so you're you're finding things like that, but it's just thousands of small little pieces like that, that add up in aggregate. Um, to making a big difference. Well, it's funny you mentioned that example because that's exactly how Geico got, got started. It was an actuary who basically noticed that there was mm-hmm. fewer car accidents amongst basically government employees. So that's the exact acronym, Government Employees there, Insurance a, Corporation. Yeah. There's a starting point for you. And we started off with the kind of like young, recent college grads don't have a great credit score. You know, we should be able, that was our the kind of core first example of how we could do that. We've moved well, well, well past that, but I do think there's lots of little niches like that. Yeah, exactly the same origin story in that regard, right? It's the noticing that there's an underserved market and that a market is probably not being properly profiled and therefore you found an opportunity. And then once you get in that game, you start looking for these kind of exceptions all over the place, which makes perfect sense. Yeah, good job covering the entire like basis of the company. So let's let's wrap this up with the three questions I ask everybody in the end, uh, to end a positive note. If you had one wish for something you could change in your company or the industry as a whole, what would it be? My company. I that that's a dangerous question. I think I'd love to speed up the adoption and the iteration cycle uh, of the industry as a whole on these kinds of technology. I just see, you know, both on the underwriting and if you go outside of personal loans, we have barely touched the script, the surface of consumer, let alone commercial underwriting, and then the, the automation process. I'd love to see us find ways to accelerate the adoption and testing of these technologies because there's such a win for both the institutions, the consumers, the, the business customers. Anything we could do to speed up that, I, we we think internally a lot about learning cycle time. How fast can I go from an idea to learning about it to iterating on it? And I'd love to speed that up for the industry as a whole, at least financial services, maybe not fintech, which iterates pretty fast. Second question for you. What, what's been the biggest challenge at a company where it is today? You know, there's been so many. Just <laughs> All of them. <laughs> I mean, I, I, so for history, I, I joined when we were five people, either fourth or fifth employee, depending on, on who you get to ask. And um, it's every stage has its own challenge. So it's it's different. We, we, we had a very different product when we started. And we, we had a product that the market wasn't really interested in. Uh, in terms of the finance, we had income share agreements. We sort of started that. So been many moments that were life and death pivots. I guess the hardest one to deal with are macroeconomic disruptions. We saw one due to some issues in the industry a couple of years ago. We saw one at the start of COVID where you feel like your business is doing everything right and things are going well. And yet, broadly speaking, there's a slowdown among capital markets or securitizations that ends up impacting you. And it's it's difficult as an entrepreneur, so many things you can't control. And when those things that you're outside your control kind of come in and impact your business negatively, that's a tough one because there's not really anything you can do about it. And that's um, maybe the hardest thing to feel like there's nothing I can go and, hey, this is a problem. Usually there's, this is a problem. We go we go solve it. And there's some kinds of problems that are not are outside your control. And those are the hardest to, to accept to deal with, I think. All right. So last question for you. What, what excites you the most about what it is you're working on? It keeps you getting up in, in the morning to keep on fighting this fight. We start and end with the consumer. I think every two-sided marketplace has to have like one side mm-hmm. that they really built it for. And we built it for the consumers. And we one of the things we do to stay connected to that is we, we like borrow reviews every week at our all-hands meeting, TGIF. And seeing the impact that these things make the on our consumers' lives is really the thing that keeps us going. And the thing that makes me excited is to realize how much of an impact we've had and how little a segment 
of the overall consumer lending ecosystem we're in. I mean, we're like a large player, but a minority share player in unsecured consumer lending, which is the smallest category of lending in the U.S., and we're, you know, we're looking at taking this into automobile loans, mortgages, tackling the payday problem with very small, short, no, very short dollar, short-term small dollar loans. So those things get me super excited because you just realize if we can have this much impact in a small segment of that lending ecosystem, what happens when we go actually start applying these capabilities across the board? And that's uh, a lot of wood to chop ahead of us, but also it gets me really excited to keep chopping it. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Greatly appreciated. And uh, best of luck in continuing this journey. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jason. It was a fun conversation. So that was today's episode of FinTech Impact. If you're in the U.S. looking for a uh, alternative lender who's going to look at more just the, just the conventional FICO scores, by all means, please take the time to check out Upstart. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.